So I was offering real money to people who would do this passage instead of me this evening. Nobody bit. Uh, In the year of our Lord 2022, almost 50% of marriages in the United States will fail and will end in divorce or separation. Researchers uh, estimate that about 41% of first-time marriages end in divorce. Among young people, I've noticed there is an increasing anxiety about marriage. There are questions among young people, Christian people, about the circumstances which might make divorce the best recourse. They're thinking about that, by the way, before they even think about asking anyone out. So that's the extent to which it's worrying people and preying on their minds. Well, this text, I think, gives us some tools by which we can make an informed decision on the subject of marriage and divorce. The the chapter begins by telling us the location of Jesus. Jesus leaves Galilee. He's moving towards Jerusalem, having Uh, finished his ministry in Galilee, having now determined that he is aiming for the cross, and this is the time. The crowds are gathering wherever he goes, and according to his custom, we read, he uh, sits down and teaches them. And it's as he teaches them that the conversation that we have in verse 2 takes place. Now, these Pharisees, at least some of them, as we'll see, Uh, would have probably agreed with the philosophy of Paul Simon in one of his songs. If you're under 60, you don't even know who Paul Simon was, but he wrote a song called 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. You just slip out the back, Jack, make a new plan, Stan. You don't need to be coy, Roy. Just get yourself free. Hop on the bus, Gus. You don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key, Lee, and get yourself free. There were, in the current climate of Jesus' day, those who believed that basically you could end your marriage for any reason you thought fit. Today, through popular songs, through shows, social media, through popular politics and political actions, many are being seduced into thinking that the marital nightmare can be fixed by a blissful separation. In spite of all of the evidence of the costs to mental health, the costs to children, as well as to the people involved themselves in terms of psychological damage, apart from the spiritual cost, people are persuaded of this. Now, you'll notice in verse 2, these Pharisees came to test Jesus. It wasn't that they were coming with theological or exegetical questions. They were actually trying to entrap Jesus. So what's the background to this? Well, as I've said, at this time in mainstream Judaism, there were teachers, rabbis in various schools, some who believed that divorce was permissible and others who did not. Uh, Within Judaism, there was a big debate about grounds for divorce. The school of Shammai, a rabbi who interpreted Moses' uh, concession that if a man finds some some indecency in his wife, 
that uh, Shammai taught that that was adultery. It had to be adultery and adultery only. Another rabbi, Hillel, allowed divorce on quite trivial grounds. His wife went around with loose hair instead of having it up in place, all tidy-like. Or spinning yarn in the street. Or, or talking to a strange man. Or disrespecting her husband's relations. I really don't like your brother. Or if she's a brawler, defined as if her voice could be heard in the next house, then you could divorce her. If she burnt your dinner, I like the thought of that one actually. It reminded me of my mother. And my mother couldn't really cook very well. She could only really cook five meals. And she would, on a Monday, get some ground beef, put it in a a pan with some water, ground beef in a pan with water, on the stove and boil it till all the life had gone out of it. And then she would give you that Monday. Then she would reheat it Tuesday. And that was Monday and Tuesday dealt with. And I remember on a couple of occasions coming home and you could smell it outside the house. And as you came in, of course, she had gone off to do something else. She had left it boiling on the, on the uh, kitchen stove. And the only times I ever saw my dad cross or angry at my mother was on those two or three occasions when she burnt the dinner. Anyway, in ancient Israel, you could divorce her for that. My dad would never have done that in a million years, but you could divorce her for that. Uh, there was another rabbi, Akiba, who said that if a man found a woman was prettier in his eyes, he could divorce his wife forthwith. So there were these, there, there were these different schools, some that said only on the grounds of adultery, others that you could find something you didn't like uh, about your wife and you could divorce her. And uh, their question as they come to Jesus is not so much about the details of those positions. Their quest question was whether Jesus permitted divorce under any circumstance. If you compare this passage with the parallel in Matthew chapter 19, it makes it clear. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause or for any reason at all? And that was a poison question. If he said no, then he would be contradicting Moses and therefore the law of God that permitted it. If he said no, he would be attacking King Herod, who had famously divorced his wife in favor of another woman. And if you know the story of John the Baptist, you remember that he critiqued, well, he absolutely demolished King Herod for having done that, which is why he lost his head. If Jesus said divorce and remarriage were not permissible, it would have got straight back to King Herod and it would have been a major attack on God's will, even if it was his permissive will revealed in Scripture. So the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus off guard, trick him into condemning himself. And it's in response to that then that Jesus speaks to them about God's word, about divorce, 
and God's word about marriage. First of all, then, if you look at verses 3 and 4, Jesus talks about a divine concession. And the verbs that Jesus uses, that are used rather in the passage, are very deliberate. Jesus asks, What did Moses command? And they replied, Moses allowed, Moses permitted. So Jesus speaks in terms of command, while they're speaking in terms of permission. And herein, I think, lies the heart of Jesus' teaching on divorce. It is exactly the same as that of Moses. Now, let me read to you the passage in Deuteronomy from which Jesus is quoting here. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if, he finds no favor in, if she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and, and, and so it goes on. The certificate of divorce freed, the, <clears throat> freed this woman to go and remarry. <clears throat> now, there's a lot of debate about what that finding something indecent means. The hardliners said it meant adultery. In fact, there, we, we really, I think the scholars have been doing a lot of work on this for 2,000 years, really, and they haven't really found out exactly what it refers to. Maybe we're not supposed to know what it exactly referred to. Maybe we're meant to think of it as a kind of general category of something fundamentally wrong in the marriage. The marriage had broken down in some way or, or whatever. We can't really be sure or categorically say anything about that. But you get the point. The point is that this was not part of God's command. This was something God permitted. And as you read Deuteronomy, what you find is that Moses permits it under the guidance of God in order to regulate it, in order to provide for the security of the wife by providing her with a certificate of divorce with its right to remarry, but also the certificate of divorce, when she showed that, would avoid her being stoned to death for uh, adultery if she remarried. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus permits divorce on the ground of pornea. And once again, this word pornea is not to be confused with the word adultery. probably includes adultery, but it's not the word adultery. It would include anything of a sexual nature that steals from our exclusive relationship with our spouse. And the same chapter in Matthew 5, Jesus goes on to explain that to look at a woman with lust, and I suppose it works the other way around. If it happens, if women look on men with lust, I don't know if you do or not. I've never been a woman. Uh, but if you do, it probably applies to you as well, that if you have lust in your heart, if you want in that way, then the principle Jesus teaches is that even to do that, even to lust after someone who isn't your wife or husband, is adultery, is counted as adultery in the eyes of God. 
is the equivalent of adultery in the eyes of God. And that principle that Jesus introduces there, of course, then causes us to look at pornea, and it brings to mind what? It brings to mind pornography, doesn't it? One of the great uh, abuses of our age. I, I, I know, have known pastorally so many marriages that have gone uh, AWOL just on this basis alone. That one or other, usually the man, sadly, has a pornography addiction. What is pornography? It's looking at an image, an image of someone, and, and lusting after them, wanting them. And though you don't actually get to touch them, in your mind, you do in your mind what you would like to do at a physical level. Pornography involves gaining sexual pleasure from what one views. And that's committing adultery. Because Jesus said that to lust after someone is to be guilty of adultery. He, he extends the vocabulary of adultery to include the lustful look and the carnal desire. And pornography feeds our lust and excites our desire, even when it is for something on our screen or something we're imagining in our head. The person who's been betrayed that way, just as much as if they'd gone out and and committed adultery with another person, would be in Jesus' mind, would have permission to divorce. Ah. Now, divorce, as I said, is a concession. Jesus says it's a concession to human sin, hardness of heart. It's because of the hardness of your heart that he wrote you this commandment. In other words, when Moses introduced that, that permission, which was from God, God's law didn't change. God's absolute desire, his purpose and his will is that marriages should stay together for life and that that people should not lust after anyone else or anything else. That's God's will, as we'll see in a moment. But this permission was granted because of the hardness of of our heart. It's an action against the creational design. It's an indication of rebellion, really to want to be separated from your partner. And Jesus deals with it as a regulatory measure to deal with the result of sin. When he he talks about this permission that they raise with him, he doesn't allow them to use it as a, a kind of lever to get other grounds of divorce in. He teaches that this is a is an instrument by which the tendency in the human heart to want to get out of a marriage can be at least stabilized on behalf of the innocent party. And I I think that, that that's pretty clear from the text. So here Jesus refers to Moses. Matthew 5, I've told you already and also in Chapter 19, uh, there is this acceptive clause that uh, uh, divorces out except for marital unfaithfulness. 
Mark and Luke don't mention this, but Matthew does. Uh, we've talked about the grounds for that in pornea, whatever. It's a broad term that covers some of these sexual sins. And uh, it should be added quickly that while divorce and remarriage are allowed by the exception, it is in no way compulsory, even if someone is unfaithful. The one who is sinned against has it in their power to forgive them. To forgive them and divorce them. Because forgiveness does not necessarily mean that you can live together after that's happened the way you lived together before. So you can forgive them and receive them back. Forgive them and divorce them. That permission is there in the words of Jesus. Then in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul introduces another element, very untidily, because, uh, and yet I think what we see the apostle doing, he, he introduces this. If you look at 1 Corinthians 7, he uh, talks about what the Lord has said, and then he gives his exception. He gives another exception, just as Moses has in, in the Old Testament, so Paul has in the New and here, the exception is a believer. Uh, there's a married couple. One of them becomes a Christian. The other is not. The one who is not does not like the fact that this one has become a Christian. He wants to get rid. He wants to get rid of her. She wants to be rid of him because he's become a Christian. And Paul argues there that, in fact, the, in those circumstances, if the non-Christian person puts them out of the house, in a sense rejects them from the marriage, that they are free. They're not bound, they're free. That is, they're free to remarry, is the, is the presumption that we take from that. He's dealing with mixed marriages there. Now, how, how is all of this about divorce come down to us uh, today? Um, John Calvin, commenting on the Deuteronomy passage, puts it like this, God chose to make a provision for women who were cruelly oppressed and for whom it was better that they should at once be set free than that they should groan beneath a cruel tyranny during their whole lives. He goes on to refer to Malachi, where he says, divorce is preferred to polygamy, where a husband is bringing all other women into the, the marriage, since it would be a more tolerable condition to be divorced than to bear with a harlot and a rival, Malachi 2.14. And he goes on to say, undoubtedly the bill or scroll of divorce, whilst it cleared the woman from all disgrace, cast some reproach on the husband. For he who confesses that he's put away his wife because she does not please him brings himself under the accusation of moroseness and inconstancy. Calvin doesn't have much time, obviously, for those that do that. Uh, the, uh, in the Presbyterian Church, 
of America's ad interim Committee on Divorce and Remarriage, it says this, a husband's violence seems to us by any application of biblical norms to be as much a ruination of the marriage in fact as adultery or actual departure. This is so because his violence separates them. Even if the wife is not driven to physically leave the home, marital violence creates a profound cleavage between them and is thus an expression of his unwillingness to consent to live with her in marriage within the, within the kind of uh, contours of what marriage should be. That's what the PCA hold, although I'm not sure that ever was brought to the General Assembly and approved. Uh, Dr. Murray, Westminster, commenting on the language of 1 Corinthians 7. The man and the woman are placed on the same level as respects the liberty granted. Quoting the passage, if the unbelieving depart, let them depart. The brother or the sister is not bound in such cases. You'll notice in the passage we've just read that Jesus even mentions in verse 12, if she divorces her husband. That's the first time that the idea of a woman divorcing her husband is even mentioned in the Bible. And Jesus mentions it, even in this negative way in which it's mentioned here. There in 1 Corinthians 7, a woman may leave or put away or uh, the, uh, uh, the believer in the marriage, or the, the woman might be the believer in the marriage. And he goes on to add, this is uh, John Murray, he goes on to add this, there is no longer, in the New Testament, there is no longer male and female, just as there's no longer Jew and Gentile. Therefore, women have the same rights and, and debts and duties as the man in the marriage setting. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, it acknowledges two causes for divorce. One, adultery. The other one is put like this, such willful desertion as can in no way be remedied by the church or the civil magistrate. Probably one of the most unfortunate expressions in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, in that it's absolutely as clear as pitch black what they're actually referring to. There's absolutely no hint about what they're referring to there. But there's abs- there is no doubt that in the history of the church, the Roman church post-Reformation has taken the stance that there are no grounds for divorce, period. And then they become inconsistent because they have other ways of getting around it, annulling a marriage, for example or some form of separation. Uh, So they they can't have their cake and eat it, but they they take both sides on on the matter. There's no doubt that the Reformed were historically more ready to acknowledge that divorce is something that we don't want to see happen, but it may happen, and... uh, this is, this is the expression that's used. 
Adultery and fornication committed after a contract being detected before the marriage giveth occasion to the innocent party to dissolve the contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, it's lawful for the innocent party to sue for a divorce, and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. So those are the the provisions that that remain for uh, in the in the church's books. There's a there's a a piece in Gerhardus, Gerhardus Voss when he's talking about marriages and when we come to talk about divorce. He's saying that there is the potential within marriage which is meant to be unbreakable for a break to take place. Gerhardus Voss puts it like this. We may have in our parlor table a beautiful, costly vase or vase. I wish we could speak English. It, it ought to be handled carefully. It ought not to be broken. It was not made to be smashed. It was made to exist as a thing of beauty and grace. But it's not impossible to break it. And if a member of the family breaks it through carelessness, or in a fit of temper smashes it deliberately, there is nothing to do but sweep up the broken fragments and dispose of them. We will not say this vase or vase was not intended to be broken. Therefore, it is impossible to break it. The vase is unbreakable. Or therefore, in spite of the fact that it lies in shattered fragments in the floor, we will not throw it away. We will keep it forever. No one would say that about a broken vase, he says. Yet that is substantially the argument of those who say that the marriage bond is indissoluble and unbreakable. I don't say it, read that to commend it. That's Gerhardus Voss's own view. R.C. Sproul, in one of his uh, books, uh, raises this, this possibility. He says this, If a man commits adultery and his wife finds out about it, is the wife obligated to remain in the marriage? He reckoned that 99% of evangelicals would say yes. I know, because a lot of people would say to, to somebody who finds himself in that circumstances, pressure would be brought to bear on people in those circumstances. Lots of pressure to say, yes, you must stay in that marriage. Sproul goes on to say, I think that if the husband repents, the wife is obligated to receive him as a brother in Christ, but not as a husband, because God gave his provision for ending a marriage if the trust that lies at the heart and foundation of that marital union is violated. In other words, Jesus was saying adultery ends the marriage, period. Adultery ends the marriage, full stop. Now, you're free. In such circumstances, you're free, as I said earlier, to forgive and to remain within the marriage. You're also free to forgive them, but leave the marriage in the realization that you will never trust this person ever again. 
ever again. And you're just going to have a miserable life. That, that's the kind of thing that he's, that he's getting at here, I think. Sometimes he says the church and individual believers put heat on people whose marriages are in crisis, exhorting them that it's not right to divorce. And I think that's wrong. Well, that's his point of view. And let me underline here that divorce is a temporary concession to human sin. It does not have divine approval, though it's a concession that's made in the Bible. It must never be understood as having divine approval. But here's the, here's the greater argument against divorce. It's to be brought as where Jesus brings us as we read on in this text, back to God's original design. Jesus reminds us that marriage is a creation ordinance. From the beginning, God made them male and female. Human sexuality is a divine creation. Therefore, marriage is a divine ordinance. It's part of, man, of God's arrangement for man's good. It isn't the only good. Paul will argue that uh, being single and celibate, as he was, is also a good. Not for everyone, but it's a good one of, the, one of the issues we face in our evangelical churches is we talk a lot about marriage, but we don't talk a lot about singleness. And so our singles find themselves zeroed out. Well, the Bible says some stuff about singleness and celibacy and being unmarried. And Paul himself advocated that as a way in which you can give your life more fully to the service of God and other people than perhaps you could from a marriage pers- married perspective. Here, here, Jesus reminds us, though, that marriage is a creation ordinance. It's a bond that's based on God's Word. At the beginning, God made them male and female. Now, notice that. That's where we get our our sexual identity from. What do? What is my identity? What am I? What am I? I am what my body looks like. I'm a male. Some of you are females. I can tell. That's what distinguishes us. God has made us male and female. Look what he says in verses 7, 8, and 9. We've been joined together, yoked together. The marriage bond is not simply a contract, a human contract. It's a divine yoking, a bringing together of two people, forming them into something new, as we'll see in a moment. The way in which God lays this yoke upon a married couple is not so much by creating some kind of mystical union as declaring His will and His Word. The death or breakdown of a relationship cannot therefore be regarded as in itself the ground for dissolution of the basis of this union. 
God's word has priority. So marriage is a creation ordinance. Marriage is a permanent and exclusive union, the way God designed it. Notice how marriage involves both a leaving and a joining. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. I can't tell you how many troubled marriages I've found when uh, the man has insisted that the wife kind of, kind of moves in his direction and he has all his family round, round about, and they're all a big happy family that will just drop in at any time and so forth and so on. And, and the woman is on her own. Her family isn't anywhere near. She has no, nobody to back, to back her up, as it were. It's better if you just go somewhere brand new and start afresh because the principle that's being that's being placed, given here, is that this couple become something brand new, one flesh, which indicates the physical, emotional, social unity of husband and wife, more than just a personal thing, more than the relationship children have to their parents, Far closer than that, verses 7 and 8 imply that marriage is exclusive. There's a man and his wife. That it's publicly recognized that he leaves his parents and is united to his wife. That it's permanent. He's united for life. And that the union is consummated by sexual intercourse. So whenever we start talking, people start talking about divorce, to me, I start talking about marriage to them and reminding them of what marriage is meant to be. Marriage is not, by the way, the gospel. We use that word gospel in the wrong places. Marriage is not the gospel. Your, your marriage will not save you. Your marriage will not give you the happiness that only Jesus can give you. But it will give you happiness. You will have to work on it. There will be plenty of times you have to say you're sorry, and, and many times when you have to go the, the, the second mile in order to make peace. But it will be satisfying. And that's the kind of marriage in which children find a place of safety. And the husband and wife find safety in each other and security in one another. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Used to be words that I, I would say the marriage ceremony. What God has brought together, let no one put asunder. So in these verses then, Jesus speaks about divorce. That's the subject they brought up to him. He addresses it. He reminds them that uh, any permission we see in the Bible for divorce is there not by divine command, but is allowed by God because of the way in which we so easily break something that is beautiful and wonderful and something that is worthy of God's blessing. Well, let's pray together. 
Lord, as we pray this evening, we pray for the, the marriages in our church, the brand new ones and the very old ones. And we pray, Lord, that whatever stage people are at in their life, that you and your great grace would help them to focus on the marriage rather than think of reasons why they could get out of it. And even where there's been failure, Lord, uh, let there be forgiveness. And if separation is the only way that a relationship of friendship and forgiveness can go on, Lord, we pray that you'd give the grace in that circumstance as well. Keep us, Lord, keep our hearts close to yours, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.